We're living in an era of information overload. We've more knowledge than ever before. But what do we do with it all? Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. It's a workspace designed not just for making progress, but for getting inspired. Notion is the AI-powered workspace where the everyday takes care of itself. Meetings have summaries, Docs find themselves and every question has an answer because Notion AI turns knowledge into action. And I know that myself because I once asked it to write an introduction for a How to Fail episode. And I have to say, it was so helpful and so convincing. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com forward slash fail. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com forward slash fail fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com forward slash fail. This season of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day is sponsored by Sweaty Betty. I love yoga. I want to feel liberated and calm when I do yoga. And I don't want to have to worry, as I have done in the past, about my vest slipping upside down when I'm attempting to do headstand, which is why my favourite activewear brand to wear when I do yoga is Sweaty Betty. I love their yoga collection. I love the thought that the all-female design team has put into things like their vests, which have open backs so that you don't feel too sweaty or constricted. I love the fact that their leggings move so easily every time you do a warrior pose. And I would love for you to have the same experience as me with Sweaty Betty. And so they're offering you 20% off their products with the code HOWTOFAIL. Thank you very much to Sweaty Betty. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week, I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. Lisa Tadeo is a writer, but she is also, in many respects, a therapist, a confessor, a reporter, and an anthropologist. Her debut non-fiction book, Three Women, has already been called a masterpiece by Elizabeth Gilbert, riveting by Dave Eggers, and has been credited with inventing a whole new literary genre – one that blends the detailed reportage more usually associated with an embedded war correspondent with a lyrical and gripping turn of phrase that makes it read more like a novel. The book is extraordinary, in part because of the ordinariness of its subjects, three women living in different parts of America, whose attitude to sex and desire is, at many points, so relatable it hurts. There is Lena, a homemaker in suburban Indiana, who is in the grip of an all-consuming affair with a man who does not return her love. Sloane from Rhode Island is married to a husband who likes to watch her have sex with other people. Maggie in North Dakota is struggling to come to terms with a relationship she had with her high school teacher. Over eight years, Tadeo got to know these women intimately. 
She moved to live with them and shadow their lives. She taped thousands of hours of interviews. The result is a deeply immersive account of the erotic lives and longings of women, a subject so underserved by our culture that three women feels utterly revolutionary. It is unlike anything I have ever read before. In the end, Tadeo writes, it all comes down to fear. Men can frighten us. Other women can frighten us. And sometimes we worry so much about what frightens us that we wait to have an orgasm until we are alone. We pretend to want things we don't want, so nobody can see us not getting what we need. Lisa Tadeo, welcome to How to Fail. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. I read that sentence that I've just quoted, and it's actually in the introduction to your astonishing book. And that sentence resonated so deeply with me that I like dog-eared the page <laughs> several times over, took a picture of it on my phone, and it's a pleasure to quote it. And, and I just wonder, talking about what I've just described in the introduction, the eroticism, the longing, the yearning of women's desire and the fact that it's so underserved by all of our literature, it seems. Do you think the root of that comes from the fear that you described there? Yes, I mean, I think that as women, we are so afraid of being judged by other women predominantly. That's what I saw across the hundreds of people I spoke to. And the women all had, men, I think, you know, men, we've been living in a patriarchal society for centuries. And men's desire is very straightforward. We are okay with it, you know. Whereas women's is scary mm. to men. It's scary to other women. When women want something, when they fight for something, whether it's a man or a job, it's almost seen as like aggressive and catty. And it's almost considered mannish more than it is a woman fighting for what she wants. I saw that just across almost 90% of the people I spoke to. Not to generalize, but it was something that kept coming up. And I'm so fascinated by how you found your subjects. Was there something that instinctively drew you to each one? Or was it a process of discovery? I mean, were there lots of people that you didn't use as case studies? Over eight years, I drove across the country six times. I also called lawyers, editors, psychologists, I would just say, do you have any patients or clients that you, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know what to do. You know, I was going to write about desire. An editor, my editor had said, you can write about whatever you want. So desire kind of came naturally after reading Gay Salise's I Neighbor's Wife. So it was taking the pulse of sexuality in the late 70s and early 80s. It was like about swingers, colonies, and Mr. Talese very much literally immersed himself in each situation. You know, I read it. I was very impressed with the immersive quality. He spent a decade also. But however, it was told from such a male perspective. I think it's a great book. I think it was lacking the things that I wanted to hear about as a woman. And so that was sort of where I began from, to look for compelling stories that were also completely honest and ultimately that people were going to want to share with me. So a lot of people who I had dropped off because I would say, you know, tell me as much as you want. And then if there's something that you don't want in there, we can take it out or, you know, so we would do that. And then we would, I would spend like five or six months out having moved into their towns. And then they would say, you know, I don't want you to mention this part and this part. And I would be like, without that, it's just a story about, you know, you working at a coffee shop. And while that's interesting in a book about coffee shops, you know, it's a book about desire. And so there was a lot of that. So yeah, it was difficult. 
to find people. And how did you make a living during that time? It was quite hard. I mean, my the advance I received for the book was very kind and generous. However, it was for a two-year contract, not an eight-year contract. So it was difficult. My boyfriend at the time, who is now my husband, got a job at a local Kmart taking pictures. He had a very fancy photography degree from the Corcoran, but we were in rural Indiana, so he went to the Kmart and was taking holiday photos of families, like, you know, that you print out. So, you know, we were doing a lot of that. It was running on fumes to a large extent. But Indiana was inexpensive, and I wrote some more articles, and it kind of, you know, it just, it was difficult. Yeah. Did you ever once doubt what you were doing? Yes, every single day. I had no idea what I was doing until I finished the section about the housewife in Indiana whose husband didn't no longer wanted to kiss her on the mouth. Until I finished writing that, I didn't know what I was doing. And after I finished writing that, I felt a little bit more like I had a nucleus from which to build on. It's fascinating, that strand. So Lena, which is not her real name. So the only person whose real name you use is Maggie because it's a court right. document. Right, Yeah. But Lena, I think so many women relate to because it's the sort of unquantifiable nature of unrequited Mm -hmm. love. Mm -hmm. And it's so agonising Mm -hmm. because you can completely understand she's having this sexual awakening Mm -hmm. and Aidan, her lover, doesn't feel the same way. Mm -hmm. And is it true that you actually, you would follow her to the assignations that she had with Aidan? Yes. I would either drive with her and like wait down the road or there was a winery right down the road. So that was an easy thing to do. (laughs) Or I would go right to the spot. It was the river, which is where they had first, you know, used to meet each other during high school. And I would go to the river directly after she had been with him to take in the smells and the sounds and be able to describe them. But also like the moment she would leave, she would call me and just give me a rundown of the whole interlude. And then there's one time, and I quote it in the book verbatim, because she just wrote me this Facebook message because she couldn't, I don't remember how texting quite worked at the time, but it was, she had to pay per text. So she sent me a Facebook message of everything that had transpired down to every single movement during their interlude. And I just reprinted it completely because I couldn't have done better than that. But the thing is, she was finding herself in those moments. So it was less about sex, I think, than sort of regaining her sense of self after having been raped as a young woman and then you know, a husband who didn't want to kiss her on the mouth. So there was a lot going on. And so her sections, the sexuality of them was less about erotica for me than it was about someone just truly being in love and seeing them sort of starting to like themselves again. The Maggie story I found the most heartbreaking because this is a podcast all about failure. And Mm -hmm. actually it felt like Maggie had been failed Mm -hmm. at every turn Mm -hmm. by the society that was meant to protect her. Mm -hmm, Was that difficult for you as a writer to be able to pass your emotion from the objective reporting side? Yes and no. I mean, one of the reasons I drove to Fargo the next day after having read her story in a local newspaper, I was working on something else. I was trying to get behind a lead that there were a group of immigrant women working at a coffee shop during the day and then being trucked out to the local oil fields at night to have sex with the men. So I was working on that. I was very interested in it, and I thought it was going to be the next leg. And then I read about Maggie's trial, which had just ended, in the local paper. Like, you know, the text messages that they allegedly sent each other were not 
able to be recovered because it had been such a long time, but the phone calls were. And there were these hours of phone calls after 11, after midnight. And for me, and then it was just like, nobody was saying that. You know, and I have the Twilight book where he wrote all of these post-it notes that said, I can't wait till you're 18. I can't. When you see the Twilight book with all these notes, the handwriting expert that they had was like the she said Maggie definitely didn't write them, but Aaron Knodel might have. It was a sort of, mm. one of the jurors said that even if he had written those notes, she still would not have convicted him. Yes, it was difficult for me, but at the same time, I think that the only way to really tell her story was to remain very even about it. Because as I said to her at the time, too, I'm like, you know, you're going to read things in this that are going to make you cringe that you told me, but I'm not going to write this in a way that's completely as though I am taking your side. Because if I do that, it won't be real. You know, it has to be the truth. It has to be your truth and your story. And I have to tell it It was a consensual relationship. It was statutory rape, but it was consensual. So there's an element of that, that if you don't say that, if you just deny that and go into the sort of element of rape and grooming, which is true, but there's two sides to that story. And if you don't tell the other one. So yes, I guess what I'm saying is, yes, I was enraged, but I was also trying to be as even as possible. I thought you did a beautiful job, by the way, of of that kind of close third person. And it was very even handed. And I so felt for her because it felt as if Aaron Knodel, who is the high school teacher who was accused of this, got away with it because he looked like a nice kind of guy mm-hmm. and he just won this award mm-hmm. for North Dakota Teacher of the Year. Yes, yeah. Precisely. And so it was almost like the jury was hesitant to convict him because yes. he looked okay. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, 100%. And that's what Maggie's mother said. She said nobody wanted to believe that this nice young man had done this. But it's easy in our society, especially prior to the Me Too movement, to look at a young woman who, you know, came from the quote-unquote wrong side of the tracks, whereas Aaron Knoedel was on the right side of the tracks, and to say, you know, she wants to take down this man. It's just easy to do that. It's just easier to do that in our, you know, even now, still, there's something about, you know, the Madonna whore aspect that we hold almost every woman to that is so ingrained that, yes... I am going to come on to your failures for a minute, but I just want want to take this opportunity because there's so many questions I want to ask you, having read the book. What efforts did you make to disguise the identity of the other two women? Because I was so fascinated by the book that the first thing I did was go on Google and try and find out who they were by putting in Rhode Island, restaurateur, couldn't find find anyone. Um, So good job. But what did you do? And did you talk to them about how you were going to protect their identities? Yes, I did. I tried my best at first and then I I would tell them because, you know, I mean, they would know better than I would. So I did my best. And then I told them that, you know, I'm like, does this I didn't change that many details, but I think I changed enough to hopefully safeguard against that. I mean, not against, you know, but just people in their communities are the people I think that would be the most harmful. They'll try to find out. And that's something that keeps me up at night. Have the women all read the book? Yes, two of them have. The third one does not. Lena does not want to. It's weird. It's almost like she'd like write things on Instagram to me like, you know, the book looks like it's doing well. I'm so happy for you. And I'm like, are you sure you don't want to read it? (laughs) So Maggie and Sloan read it and they surprisingly didn't want any omissions, which I was shocked by. They did both ask me to add a number of things, which was really interesting. And really, I thought added layers to it that 
you know, hadn't previously been there. But they'd also been fact-checked by a professional fact-checker, so I think they knew what was coming. But I think for Maggie specifically, it was difficult to relive those things. But a couple of days ago, she actually sent me an email that said, thank you, it was like, it's been like closure. At the same time, I think she's very afraid of the same people who criticize her to begin with to do it again. And do you think you're going to have a lifelong relationship with these three women now? I would like to. I hope that, you know, everything goes well book-wise in their favor so that they don't end up regretting the situation, which is possible. But I feel very strongly for each of them. I'm very invested in their lives in a way that, you know, I think would be completely sociopathic if I weren't. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. I still talk to each of them very often. Maggie, the most, probably like once or twice a week to just kind of keep her updated because she's the most, you know, it's going to be her real name out there, so... Next time you speak to Maggie, please do tell her that I'm so on her side. I will, but she's actually doing really well right now. She's a social worker. She's helping people like herself who had been, you know, who didn't have a guidebook for this sort of a thing. So, yes, I will tell her that she likes to hear. She didn't get any of that. She's been getting that now from early readers of the book. When people write things, I send her how her story has helped them because she didn't get that from anyone. It was shocking. So your first failure is related to a very dark period of time you went through in your 20s, mm-hmm. um, specifically to do with your mother, who actually is a very interesting presence in your book, mm-hmm. because you start off talking about your mother and this incident that happened to her when she was a teenager. And you say this, be- there's this beautiful turn of phrase about how your mother's desire was never fully expressed, but it was like she was, I'm going to get it wrong now, but following a trail of footsteps mm-hmm. through a forest left by your father. Yes. Oh my God, it was so good. That turn of phrase is like, again, so many women of a certain generation will relate to that. But the first failure that you sent me was about your parents dying when you were in your 20s and what happened next. Will you tell us about that? It was a very difficult time. I think the anxiety was just, and it still continues to this day, I, I suffered a great amount of anxiety and I wasn't able to really pull myself out for at least a decade I stopped writing for a long time. I didn't really socialize and didn't want to do that. I didn't want... remember one of my friends, like, set me up on a blind date, and I just got up and left, like, without even saying anything. It was just... I was like, this isn't going to help. So I just wanted to stay where I was. And what happened? Because you said that your whole family died. Pretty much, yeah. My grandfather, my aunt and uncle, who had lived with us when I was a child, so they were, like, almost a second set of parents, they both died. My mom, my dad, my dog... And yeah, it was like literally everyone except for my brother. And was it illness? My mother, cancer, my uncle and aunt both died in Italy. It was a very small town. I, I wasn't there when it happened. My dad was in a car accident. Yeah, it was, it was a lot. I'm sorry. Oh, no, thank you. I had a miscarriage. So there was a lot of, and you know what's funny is the miscarriage, I'd almost gotten myself out of it. And then that kind of like just sent me like spiraling right back down. So yeah, it was... It was a lot. (laughs) How old were you when you effectively were an orphan? Like how old? 23 when my father died and 27 when my mother died. I wrote a story for Glamour called The 20-something Orphan. 
interestingly enough. And it's so horrific because I was in the middle of like the pain. So I think, you know, there's nothing worse than writing when you're in pain. It just comes out all like rageful, and, like painful and not exactly well written. So I think you need a good couple of years, at least I do before, you know, I can accurately describe something painful. But I wrote this story and then the picture on the first page was me. God, I mean, I still, I'm so, like, I didn't want them to put it on the internet because I didn't want it to be a record. It's me putting a Christmas tree onto onto the top of a car, my dad's old car, that not the one he had been in the accident. Oh, and I'm putting a Christmas tree on, like, this is me, like, I mean, I can't. I'm just, You're all alone. Yes, with my Christmas tree. And I don't know how, you know, sometimes there's photo shoots and they just talk you into doing these crazy things. And I was like, I can't believe I'm doing this. They did my makeup in this, like, Christmas tree farm. And then they just, like, had me load it on. It was... Awful. But I think especially as a young female writer, yeah. the whole disposition is predicated on saying yes to stuff. Yes, because, 100%. Yeah. Yes, I mean, I just said it to you. It's wild. I think it's so, and I'm trying to do it less, specifically to things that don't mean anything to me. Like I was talking to somebody the other day and we were talking about how, you know, on planes and trains and just on the beach, you know, if you'd rather be reading a book or just sleeping and a man starts talking to you and if you don't talk back he's almost enraged and I've done that so many times in my life I've talked I remember I was on a flight to Singapore once and I was like 25 and there was like a 50 something year old man on the plane and I was in my early 20s and he started talking to me like I was just talking to him it was like a long flight I was talking to him the whole time I started chewing tobacco that he gave me and you know I just look back at that and I didn't want to do any of that so why did I do that oh I totally hear you one of my first jobs in journalism I was asked by basically like an all-male editing team to try out an orgasm machine yeah and I was <laughs> that's not a euphemism it was an actual machine that you know like, strapped what did onto it your ankles look like it was like a little box, but with electrodes coming out of it. And you literally put them... It was like a sort of heart rate monitor, but you put them on your ankles. So they, like, shoot up. Yes, But it wasn't, like, currents. an actual tactile thing no, that touched anything. No, And I wow. must have been 24. And not one moment did I think, I'm going to say no to this because it makes me feel really uncomfortable. Right. And it did make me feel uncomfortable. And I had a photographer come around to my flat and take a photo of me. Where? <laughs> oh, my God. Well, at least you didn't perform it on the air. Though. No, okay, okay, I didn't. Okay. I drew the line there. Okay, okay. Um, but I do think it's, you're so right that mm-hmm. especially as young women, because you want to avert the threat mm-hmm. or you want to avert the notion that you might displease someone you spend so much time forgetting your own boundaries totally why did you feel that the death of your family was your failure why did you choose it as one of your failures I mean to be very modulin my father called me right before he left work that day and I didn't pick up the phone he called me like every day like three times a day I was very much a daddy's girl and it was very like there were helicopter parents before it was like a term and I just didn't pick it up and it was one of the only times I didn't pick it up because I was like busy and I was like you know usually I picked it up and I would say I'm busy but I didn't even do that and I just watched it go to voicemail and I'm sorry (laughs) um so I just felt like if I had picked it up it, mm. you know, so I, so then life has become for me. Oh my God, I'm sorry. Don't I haven't done sorry. this a long time. <laughs> please, please don't be sorry. Thank you so much for being so um, open. 
so for me, like, that became, like, a sliding doors, you know, like, the movie with Gwyneth Paltrow. It became a sort of sliding doors thing for me. So I, it, the failure is not so much the not picking up the phone, although I think about that literally every day. The anxiety from that continues, and I have not been able to get over it, and I don't think I want to. Like, that's the truth. I've seen therapists. Have you ever heard of Talkspace? No. So I'm very, I've been very busy lately. I was busy finishing the book, so I didn't have... And I also live in a very rural part of Connecticut, so I didn't really have access to going to a therapist. So there's an online therapist that, like... I mean, therapy thing where they match you up with someone and you talk to them. Sometimes you can do Skype calls. You pay a little bit extra for Skype. But for the most part, it's just like emails and chatting. So it was great. And I asked her, it was, you know, it went on for like a couple of months and I asked her towards the end, I said, there was something going on. And I was like, just tell me everything's going to be okay. And she's like, I can't do that. And so I literally hit cancel that second (laughs) because I was like, I need someone to be able to say, and I know that sounds insane. It doesn't at all. Yeah. It sounds like you want someone to parody. Yeah, a little bit. Exactly. And I also just, it's like, look, if everything's not okay, I'm not going to come after you. And like, I understand how life works. I just want to be sort of coddled a little bit in that department. So that's a failure for me. My husband says I refuse to grieve. My parents, have you read The Year of Magical Thinking? So that, I mean, that to a T was my experience and my mother's. So, you know, and whatever, I'm sorry. I'm like, feel like I'm so, (laughs) I I know it's about how to fail, but I'm just like, I feel like I'm not anybody. Sorry, I haven't done this yet. (laughs) Don't be ridiculous. Stop apologizing. You're being amazing. This is exactly what this podcast is about. So you're fine. Um, The anxiety, did it get worse? Because you're now a mother. Yeah. Oh, it's hideous. I mean, who told me, who thought I should have a child? Not, I mean, it is absolutely insane because it is, I'm just awful. Like she said to me the other day, she was playing with her friends on a swing and I went up to her, I walked by her and she's like, don't worry, mommy, I'm not doing anything. I'm not going up too high. And I was like, you know, so this is another failure. I'm like, I should just not do this to her and I'm like okay great you know like I'm just not like there's stuff like that you know and my husband was saying like you know I think she really she could and she loves riding horses I don't want her to ride horses you know because I'm scared of so it's literally everything how old is she your daughter four so you see another way of looking at it is that she knows how much you love her (laughs) there is no way she could not know that that's true that's true except for when we hiss at each other (laughs) because she's a real something she's like a little demon but yes she knows I love her one of the best and slightly random pieces of advice that my own mother gave me Mm -hmm. because I was a massive worrier as a child very anxious worried about lots of stuff she said to me if you've worried about something the chances are that it won't happen that's exactly how I feel and I still feel that way I'm like just to think about all the things I'm like air conditioners falling out of windows check you know because all the so, all the most traumatic things are the yes. most unexpected. Yes, if you just think about them. Yeah. I t- oh my gosh, your mom, what a wonderful piece of advice. Perhaps see that's what I mean. See constant failure. I'm like literally I'm like that's not supposed to be it. like you're supposed to think against that. I think whatever works yeah. to get you out of a patch yes, of totally, anxiety. Totally. Totally. 100%. As I mentioned there your mother is a presence in three women. And Actually, mothers generally are a massive recurring theme in that book in quite a worrying way Mm -hmm. because I feel like part of your thesis is that a woman's desire or lack of or warped sense of self is so often an inheritance from her mother. Yes. 
Totally. Well, that's what I've said this a couple of times, and I really believe it. We talk all the time about daddy issues, and men, it's a very male notion, even. It's like, oh, she has daddy issues, and that's why she's easy or whatever. But nobody talks about mommy issues, you know, and I think that that's, or they talk about men with mommy issues. It's always flipped. And for me, I clearly have mommy issues. I sort of feel like I'm making my mother out to be this, you know, she was really just an Italian woman from a certain generation, but she said to me once, you won't be a good mother. I know, isn't that? And I think, um, of course, I think about that every day. But at the time, much like Lena, who had been raped as a young woman and said, well, I never got a disease from it or got pregnant, so it's fine. You know, we metabolize these things. But when it comes to my mom saying that, it was like, you know, she also put the strands of hair from people that she thought were going, were like malevolent into the freezer and froze them so that it would be like, so, you know, I clearly, there's a little bit of this, another kind of magical thinking going on that I've come from. But yeah, I mean, you know, there's sort of paralyzing things that our mothers can say to us that just stick there forever in a way that I don't think fathers really do. Because I also think men are less good at hurting in a certain way. Their methods of hurting are more experiential rather than vocal. And the vocal stuff is the kind that like just pings around in your brain, at least in my experience. Let's talk about your relationship with other men as an adult, because your second failure is how you transferred from New York University to Rutgers. <laughs> have, I, have I pronounced yes. that correctly? Yes, okay. yes, yes. <laughs> um, which is a state school for mm-hmm. a boy. Yes. So tell us that story. Uh, you know, and he's one of my best friends today. So however, I did not have to transfer to keep him as a best friend. That's why I was so drawn to Lena. And, you know, people have called her situation pathetic, which I think that we've all been pathetic at a certain time. And I certainly have been. So I still am in different ways. She was chasing after this man. And I have done that. And with that boyfriend, he you know, we had a relationship. He loved me. I made up all these excuses for why I've done things in my life. You know, and I always say that, like, I think, like, moving across the country for a job is fine. You know, everyone's like, oh, but if you move for a love interest, everyone's like, you know, he might not even stay with you. And it's like, well, the job might not keep you on. But that said, I do think it was a failure on my part. I think we should be generous to people who do that to each other because we do. We all do that. Men do it. But yeah, we like when we're in a position of where we think we're in a better place, we kind of are like, oh, that's pathetic. Like the word pathetic, I don't think has any place in the world. I don't think it should be there. It's like we're all pathetic. What does that word even mean? So I was pathetic, though. <laughs> Having said that, I had a almost a full scholarship to a private university where I was in a class with seven other people studying Virginia Woolf. I moved to a state school where I had to pay You know, like it wasn't much, but it was still, I had like, you know, a free ride to a great school. Not that Rutgers isn't great if anyone there is. But, you know, I was all of a sudden in a lecture class of 200 people studying like, you know, elementary Shakespeare. So I don't know. I just got there and it was like, just what am I doing? I kind of felt that right away. But I was also always scared of losing a person, Mm. you know, and way before I lost my father. And then that only kind of perpetuated the feeling. But yeah. You had some kind of choice roommates. <laughs> oh my gosh, it was awful. The first roommate who I had at NYU was a young woman named Jenny who would eat out of a dog bowl that said Jenny on it. Like literally it was a dog bowl. And she would leave it on the bathroom floor. We had our own bathrooms. And I also left a place with private bathrooms, which is rare in college. And she would leave it on the bathroom floor. And one time she 
built a Q-tip castle out of used Q-tips using the wax to kind of like, I'm sorry, I know that's disgusting, it's a, but a it's Q-tip true. A Q-tip is a cotton bud that you put yes, in your ear, isn't yes, it? Yes, yeah, yeah. sorry. <laughs> the brand name, we use the brand name as a kind of like Kleenex as tissue. But yeah, so she used ear swabs that were used to build very intricate little castles. Oh, wow. And then when I moved to Rutgers, I stayed, I moved into a apartment with my then boyfriend and another woman named Christina, who, I mean, she would sleep outside on the deck. She would, one time we came home and she was just using a vibrator in the cow, like in the middle of the room, in the middle of the day, kind of shamelessly. It was just, it was was quite, and also, oh, on my birthday, but like I came home, I was going to take a shower to go out that night and there was cat litter in the tub. And her reasoning was that she was just trying to like get rid of the cat litter to change it. Because we had told her to change it. We're like, you got to change the cat litter. And I'm like, why would you? She's like, I thought it would just, you know. And I'm like, but why would you put something that's meant to absorb in a shower? And this, the water's just going to impregnate the smell. It was horrendous. Yeah, so I moved from, well, I did move from one terrible roommate to several more. But Was the boyfriend appreciative? One of the reasons I moved was because being in New York, I was going there to see him more than he was coming to see me. Not because of a lack of anything on his part, because we were committed to each other. It wasn't, but it was just, he would be fine with not having seen me as much. I was not fine with it. I was always also nervous and jealous. Mm. You know, I don't know where that jealousy came from, but it was very much a part of my life. And I'm sure it would be there. Like, I trust my husband very much, but that part of me is not gone. And I don't think it ever will be. But it feels like a lot of women do the emotional labor in relationships. Yes. So they are the ones who yes, go and gone. stay in the apartment. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that part of the reason that female desire has been so marginalized and so underexplored until your book is that we fear its power? Yeah. I mean, you know, do you guys have the incel community yeah. here? Okay. It's, it's the same sort of. So, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons for its uprising and these people coming out of the woodwork is because, you know, there's the Me Too movement. And then there's just women kind of talking about their desire more. Men have always been able to say that they like attractive women. Women saying they like attractive men is disastrous for these men. It doesn't even matter if they're unattractive. They just feel unattractive. But whereas women who feel unattractive end up feeling bad for themselves and, you know, just doing a bunch of things. Men who feel that way just take out their rage on the women who want something that's not them. So I think that's coming out because of women showing their desire. We don't want to see that. Women don't want to see it. Men don't want to see it. It's just nobody wants to see it. And it's sad. And what's been your own relationship with desire as a woman like what what have your relationships looked like I mean you talk so lovingly of your husband and it sounds like he's a good one because he packed up and moved around the country for you have you always felt connected to your desire yes but I felt like my desire was more so something that wounded me it was more like Lena is the one that I I associate myself the most with which is funny because so many people have said you clearly are like Maggie someone said that because my mom was like Sloan I'm like my mom was nothing like Sloan people have had different reads of the book period and but for me Lena is the one that I align myself with the most so for me I was never trying to serve a man's desire but I think my desire was largely performative and I derived pleasure from being something that would be wanted. 
Mm. It's very recessive because who I am deep down, like I want to be in charge of everything. Now with my husband, because I feel comfortable, I'm very like, you know, he is watching our daughter right now. I'm just like, I'm doing this. We're doing this. I am I'm very much like my father, but I have acted like my mother, like most of my adult life and, you know, from my teens on because I've been afraid. And I think that's what happens. Like my dad told me that I could do anything I wanted. And my mother, you know, was like, because she came from abject poverty, told me that nobody could have what they wanted and including me. So, you know, having those sort of dual energies in me, I think that I spent the first half of my life being like my mom. And now I think this is who I am more, but I bet that if something happened and I were back, I would do the same things again. I don't know that I've learned because I don't know that our desire really changes so Mm. much. At least I don't think mine does. I feel like it doesn't change. It reveals itself. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes. And I think that's why your book is so important because it's changed how I view my desire. And I wonder if writing it changed how you viewed yours. Yes. I mean, I was able to come to terms with I've also you know one of the things the book did was bring up things that I had not thought about like sort of not even the bigger things but the tiny little rapes that happen you know every day to women especially when you're young just these little things that stick in our minds remember a man just with that comment alone a man who liked me that I didn't like back an older man said to me something about I had just turned like 30 So I wasn't, I was young. And he said to me that so-and-so didn't even notice me or something. He's like, you know, you're getting old when a young man stops looking at you. And it's a cruel thing, right? Mm. I've just thought about things like that. And there was a time when I was at a club trying to get into this music venue in downtown New York. And I was probably 14 or 15. And I went with my friends. We drank 40s. You got, it was like a 40 ounce of beer, like that we like had someone buy us, you know, like the classic teen thing to do. And we were waiting outside the club using our fake IDs. And this man who was probably in his 30s asked me how old I was. And, you know, I was going to lie, but then I was like, I'm just going to, whatever. I'm not interested in him. So I was like, I'm 14. He's like, well, you know what they say, if there's grass in the infield, you can play ball. I will never. So like stuff like that. And I've probably had like a thousand things like that said to me. I think we all have to some extent. And all those things kind of came bubbling to the surface. And I was just, so that happened. And I was like, I've let all of these things happen. That's why my mother's, you know, this man who masturbated on her way to work every day behind her. It's like you say that and it sounds shocking, right? But I think about all, I've allowed all of these things to happen. I still do. And I think to a certain extent, like, you know, men that we talk to, especially like, you know, do you guys are you use the term woke right now? Yes. Okay. There's men who I feel like they're basically saying, and some of them have said, if I weren't so woke, I'd say you have a hot ass. Like, that's literally something that the people, that men still say. It's just that, so yes, we are getting so much better. But at the same time, at night, these things are still going. Women are still doing things to other women at night. Jealousy is still alive and well. I've learned so much about the things that I've done. You know, I mean, I used to like, I remember walking by a table when I went to the Kentucky Derby and seeing a man who was probably with his wife and a bunch of other couples. And I just took a piece of steak off his plate as I was walking by and ate it. You know, I don't know what I wanted. Mm. Like, what was I trying to do? If a woman did that while I was sitting with my husband, I would probably punch her in the face. Mm. There's something about like, you know, self satisfied 24 year old women that I was like that now I look at and I'm like you 
whore. You know what I mean? Like, I will actually think that. Sorry, it's not. But it's like you're playing a game at that yes, age that exactly. you don't know the rules. Like, the rules have been imposed by exactly. a patriarchal society. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Just as you were talking there, I was reminded of a guy who I had a very brief fling with that consisted of like four dates. And when I called things to a close, mm-hmm. he said to me, well, as long as you don't change your mind in six months and come running back to me, because by then your ovaries would have shriveled up and I won't oh. be interested anymore. And this was a guy who knew, I mean, it's similar to you. I had a miscarriage and I had very various oh. fertility problems. And oh. similarly to you, I assimilated that. And all I said to him was, that's a bit mean. And he was like, it was a joke. And I allowed it to go. And it was only when I was talking to my friend afterwards mm. and she said, I would have thrown a drink in his face. That's outrageous. And I think in the moment when it's happening to you as a woman, so often, again, your conditioning is to make things nice. Right. For the other person. Exactly. Yeah. Like I think about, did you read Gone Girl? Love Gone Girl so much. It was the last book I tore through. Yeah. She talks about being the cool girl. You know, that's, I think, all any of us. If we're not cool, then we're aggressive and ugly would I throw any insult at it you're not cool you're not and we have this twin need to be attractive and cool to men mm-hmm. and I think that that's a deadening thing do you mind my asking how old you are 39 so do you think things are changing for the younger generation of women I you know I think that the younger generation is much less okay with things because of them growing up with the me too movement because of their growing up with that at the same time, you know, I do worry about the cycling of things that we sort of cycle back in. But I do think that once we get older, I think it's better. 25-year-old women that I know are very vocal about me too. They get very enraged. But then they're still kind of chasing people at night in a different way, which is why I always think, you know, people have been like, well, what does your book say about me too? And I'm like, no, it doesn't really. We're talking about what we don't want, but we're still not talking about what we do want. Because it's more dangerous to do that now and still. So Fascinating. So your third failure is about your career, (laughs) which by all accounts, from my perspective, looks like a success. Um, (laughs) But it's really interesting this because you you say career-wise, there were thousands of mini failures, but I didn't allow them to stay failed because it sounds to me like you're a perfectionist. (laughs) Yes. I mean, and that's the thing. It's like, I was worried that if I failed at any of them that I needed to not fail because there's too much at stake uh, being a failure in the career sense or the relationship sense. I didn't want anyone to say that about me. I and specifically other women. Like I didn't want women who didn't like me and who I didn't like throughout my life to be able to say something. But I think that's driven me my whole life. And so I think that's a failure. There is a thousand things that I should have just let go. I choose getting things right over being happy almost every day. Tell us about the Esquire story that you wrote. The one oh. that you wrote and they said it wasn't good enough to put in the oh, magazine. That's, yeah, the yeah. Heath Ledger one. So yeah, that's an example of my doing that and sort of like, I mean, I'm happy I did it. Don't get me wrong. My father had just passed away. My mother was about to be diagnosed with cancer. So it was a very troubling time. And the editor of Esquire at the time, David Granger, asked me to. Heath Ledger had just died, and he wrote me an email saying, how did Heath Ledger die? You know, tell me, go research as many facts as possible and fill in the rest with fiction. He's like, it can be anything, but most importantly, it has to be beautiful. Because, you know, someone had just passed away. I understood 
lost. But, you know, at the same time, the idea of writing something that his daughter might one day read and as, you know, Michelle Williams, who was kind of his partner at the time, would read. I feel like I shouldn't have done that. Do you know what I mean? Like, maybe I should have said no. But I did it because I wanted to write a piece for Esquire. I would have been my first piece. So I wrote this really crazy, not good, not beautiful thing where I had, like, all these different voices in there, including the Olsen twin who you know, was involved with him. So there was just like this menagerie of like voices and I handed it in and they wrote back to me, you know, that day it was very kind. It was like, Hey, this is good, but you know, we'll probably put it online. And you know, now everything's online and it's probably better to be online, but it was horrifying at the time because I just wanted to be in the magazine. I cried for like an hour and then I stayed up all night rewriting it, smoking cigarettes with my mother and not knowing that the cigarettes that she was smoking were going to lead to the lung cancer (laughs) modulin again. But, you know, everything, that's just the way that I am. So (laughs) I rewrote the story, I handed it in and they said, this is, I actually said something like, you don't even need to read it or not. I just had to do it for myself, which wasn't really true. I was like, you better read it and like put it in the magazine. So yeah, but I think of that as a... And what was their response? They loved it and they put it in the magazine, which was cool, you know, and it's clearly what I wanted. But I don't know. I don't look at it as a success. I look at it as as I needed to prove something. So I'm happy I wrote the story, but the way that I did it, I think that what was driving me was not necessarily. So interesting that you were writing it in the physical presence of your mother. Yes. Who in many respects, to me, sounds like your judgmental voice as well. Yes, But, you know, more so than judgment, she was kind of separated. They both were, in a way. My father said I could do anything. Nobody really was reading my writing. Do you Mm. know what I mean? I remember one time, it was absolutely awful, I gave them a short story that I'd written because I was always writing short stories. And I heard, like, you know, they, like, I typed it up on this, like, Smith Corona typewriter. And I gave it to them. And I heard them talking about it. And they were like, it's kind of boring. And I came down and I was like, what did you say? They're like, no, you know, whatever. It's, you know, and I get all these things were happening. Like I wrote a poem when I was eight and the librarian called my parents in and said that, why were you writing it for her? So there were a lot of little things like that. But I won a poetry contest when I was like 12 and won a thousand dollars. There were a bunch of things that happened, but my parents like did not really, not that they were not supportive. Just just they didn't get it. They didn't get it. Yeah. And do you feel proud of three women? I do. I do. But like I said to you earlier, pride is not an emotion I really have. Mm. Yeah, it's strange. It's like I I guess because I'm so in touch with my fear, I'm very self-fear aware. What I want, my goal in life is to, this is the largest failure of all, um, my goal in life is to, I like don't want people to hear this, but I feel like it'll be a success if I say it. My goal in life is to have enough backing and support and financial, etc., to coddle every single one of my fears, to like get former Secret Service agents to bring my daughter around. My husband and I have been the only people to put her in a car, and that's all my doing. So I'm completely off the reservation. Are you fearful of success? <laughs> no. Good. <laughs> There's I'm one not. thing no, I'm not no, fearful I'm not. of. No, exactly. That's, I worry about the women that I wrote about. I worry about them. I want 
things to go well so that I can do what I just said, but I don't worry about career stuff. I wish I could. Everyone thinks that I do and that I'm totally not being honest, but I swear I barely think about it. I don't want people to ever be alone the way I have felt alone. I don't think they're sad stories, but there's sadness. Also, it's just life. It's sadness and love. It's like there's nothing else that's really going on. It's one or the other at any given point in the day or the week or the year. So I'm drawn to people and to not letting people feel alone. It's something that I feel very connected to. So I want that to happen book-wise, but I do not care about career in a sort of general sense. So have you thought about what's next? Well, my novel is coming out next year. You've written a novel. I'm so happy. (laughs) What's it called? It's called Animal right now. Okay. It's about female rage. (gasps) Brilliant. Have you read Good and Mad by Rebecca Traister? No, I haven't read it. I actually have it. I have had a galley of it. Well, she writes for New York Magazine now, and I I haven't in a while. But yes, so no, I I haven't read it, so I want to. Have you read Elena Ferranti? She's my favourite. Okay, well, because as you were talking, just talking about your mother, I was like, that is a character from Elena Ferranti. I don't really love my Brilliant Friends series. It's Troubling Love and The Lost Daughter and... Days of Abandonment, those books are just, I mean, I don't think there's anything truer about female pain and rage. And it's so honest. And that's the thing that I think is so rarely out there. And people get angry at this book, I think, because of the honesty, because they don't want to look at the things that they do. And I think that that's a big deal. And I think that Elena Ferrante, at least it's fiction, so people can read it and be like, well, that's just fiction. And it's like, well, but it's not. I always think about Game of Thrones that I think is amazing. I've never read the books, but the storyline is amazing. And I'm always like, you know, these come from like real emotions, but he's so amazing at using those emotions and kind of adding dragons to them, you know, which is like amazing, right? I think that Elena Ferrante is amazing, truly. Lisa Tadeo, you've written about three women, but you've helped all women. And I just want to thank you so, so much, not only for writing the book, but for coming on this podcast and being your eloquent and brilliant self. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Sorry for crying. Never be sorry for crying, (laughs) ever. (laughs) Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it helps other people know that we exist.